Hello and welcome to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and if you're looking for a podcast about the Romans and why their empire fell, you've come to the right place. Let me kick off with a brief overview. This podcast will be weekly and about 20 minutes long. It'll be what I hope is an exciting narrative of Rome's decline and fall. If you've listened to my other podcast, which is called Byzantium and the Crusades, and by the way, if you did, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it, then you'll be familiar with the format, which is very straightforward and just about telling incredibly exciting history. What's so good about the story of Rome's fall is that it is one of the greatest stories in history. It's also one of the most important in my view because the legacy of the Roman Empire is still with us today in so many ways. For example, European languages use the Roman alphabet. Christianity was a Roman religion. Indeed, it became their state religion, very closely linked with the authority of the emperor. And a lot of the ideas we have today about government, politics, the army, as well as philosophy, art, drama and literature come from the Roman and as well as, of course, from the Greeks, since the Romans were great admirers of Greek civilization and adopted so much of it. So, enough of that introduction. Let's get on with some history. Now, I'm actually going to start at the very beginning of the story of the Roman Empire, because to understand how it fell, you really need to know what it was that fell. So, to start with, this will sound more like a history of Rome than the fall of Rome, but don't worry, we will soon get to the third century and the massive crisis that the Romans faced then. So, let's start at the beginning. Rome began as a small settlement perched upon a few hills surrounding the River Tiber, about 15 miles from the sea. Its true origins will never be known for sure. Roman historians like Pliny and Virgil, writing centuries afterwards, embellished entirely fictional legends born centuries before they wrote them down. These legends appealed to the Romans as much as to us today. The most famous of all, of course, was that the twin brothers Romulus and Remus, abandoned at birth and suckled by a she-wolf, founded the city. Greek writers embellished this by linking the twins to the legend of Aeneas, a Trojan refugee who fled to Rome and married Lavinia, the daughter of the king of Latium, where Rome would later be founded, thereby romantically suggesting that Romans had Trojan blood in their veins. But what really happened? Archaeological evidence points to a native Italian settlement on the hills of ancient Rome in about 1000 BC. Roman historians traditionally dated it to 753 BC, with Rome becoming the chief city of the Latium region by around 500 BC. Surrounded by other Italian tribes, principally the Etruscans to the north and the Samnites to the east, Rome gradually developed a political leadership position in central Italy, with Etruscan and Samnite towns increasingly owing it allegiance. But the big question is just how did the Romans achieve this? This is probably the most enigmatic question in the whole of Roman history, for there is simply no definitive surviving evidence from this period, either literary or archaeological, on which to base 
any verifiable hypothesis. However, the expected answer would be Roman victory by force of arms. This was certainly the interpretation that later Roman historians developed. They were inclined to praise their early ancestors for having a military bravado that heroically overcame their rivals. But there is little evidence to support this self-serving myth. Indeed, it is almost certain that the Roman soldiers, the Roman militia was all they were at this time, was no better equipped or organised than those of its neighbouring towns. And certainly Rome didn't benefit from having a professional army, which would later, of course, become a major hallmark of Roman authority. Additionally, Romans at an individual level were presumably just as brave and cowardly as their neighbours. It is clearly nonsense to suggest that they inherited Trojan genes that made them into a wunderkind, as Pliny and Virgil like to imagine. Instead, the only vaguely discernible evidence that suggests early Rome had a competitive advantage seems to lie with its development of a clever and pragmatic form of diplomacy. During its early years, it established a network of allies, firstly in the form of the Latin League of Italian Towns, and then more widely across central Italy, so that by 265 BC, it had more than 150 towns owing it allegiance in a sort of Roman commonwealth. And what seems to have made Rome's expansion different from, say, the Greek city-states of the 5th century BC was its light-touch government. First, it allowed its allies and even conquered towns considerable autonomy. It only required military service from its allies instead of taxes or coercion into some sort of oppressive imperial bureaucracy. Second, it was willing to award allies with Roman citizenship or soft versions of it. This is in striking contrast to, say, 5th century Athens, which was so fiercely protective of its citizen status that it would not grant it to anyone born outside Athens. In contrast, Rome was only too happy to grant diluted citizenship to the members of the Latin League and an even more diluted version of citizenship to its so-called Socii, as in Latin, as its more distant Italian allies were called, thereby ultimately integrating most of Italy into a Roman political entity. Rome's diplomatic success also reflected the challenges of its central geographic location. And perhaps this is the real answer for Rome's success, because it was situated right in the centre of a grouping of Latin towns surrounded by Etruscan and Samnite tribes, and cunning diplomacy was required to survive. Necessity is the mother of invention, and this fight for survival seems to have been the main rationale for extending the Roman Commonwealth. Strength in numbers was also a way of ensuring survival, both for Rome and its Socii. Either by accident or design, we cannot tell which, and probably the early Romans couldn't either, the necessity of forming alliances in order to ensure survival became the Roman path to expansion. And by expanding their sphere of influence, the early Romans not only survived, but they triumphed. 
Of course, Rome's early path to glory wasn't always a smooth process. For example, in 496 BC, a diminishing threat from the powerful Etruscan towns to the north caused the Latin League to turn against Rome. The result was a bloody battle at Lake Regillus, which Rome only just won. However, Roman leadership was normally welcomed by its allies, especially when external pressures became more acute. A formative example of this occurred in around 400 BC when there was a major Gallic invasion of northern Italy. Tribes of primitive Gauls, ferociously aggressive in battle, crossed the Alps and devastated the Etruscan towns in the Po Valley. Rome itself was sacked in 387 BC, although its citadel held out, famously saved by the geese warning of a night attack, according to Livy. However, the Gauls retreated, probably in fact because they were paid off rather than defeated in battle. But nevertheless, the incident seems to have strengthened not weakened Rome's leadership position as it became a champion of Italian defence against further Gallic invasions. Another byproduct of this was an acceleration in Rome's military prioritisation. Massive walls were constructed after the Gallic walls, the so-called Servian walls, to protect Rome. Some of these survive today outside the modern Termini station in central Rome and their size is compelling evidence to assume that Rome was, by the late 4th century BC, a fairly large town with a strong military ethos. The main benefit, though, to Rome of its federation of allies lay in its ability to mobilise militias across its whole network. This wasn't a trading confederation such as that of 5th century Athens made to enrich Rome, but instead a system designed to achieve the mass mobilisation of peasant soldiers when required. This meant that Roman armies were made up of as many, if not more, allied soldiers than Roman ones, although they were always commanded by Roman generals. This gave the Romans strength in numbers, which was to prove particularly important as Rome came into conflict with powerful new enemies. This happened around 280 BC, when Rome was the established leader of all the Etruscan, Samnite and other Italian tribes in central Italy. At this time, it came into conflict with the powerful Greek city-states in southern Italy. Worryingly for Rome, these Greek city-states, while individually weaker than Rome, could call for help on the powerful Greek states on the Greek mainland. The result was a war with King Pyrrhus of Epirus, one of the most powerful of the Greek mainland states at this time, who brought a large and well-equipped Greek army to help the Italian Greek city of Tarentum in southern Italy. Benefiting from its ability to mobilise substantial militia forces from its Italian allies, Rome prevailed in a war of attrition against Pyrrhus. Although Pyrrhus was victorious in battle against the Romans, they simply wouldn't concede defeat, and suffering from heavy casualties himself, from which the term Pyrrhic victory is derived, in 275 BC Pyrrhus retired back to Greece, where he was compelled to fight his neighbouring Macedonians. 
So Rome had triumphed in its first international conflict, and soon all the Greek city-states in southern Italy saw that resistance was futile and like the Latin towns had done before, they offered Rome their allegiance. By 265 BC, Rome was the political and military leader of the entire Italian peninsula south of the Po Valley, which was still occupied by Gallic tribes, and came up against its first great power opponent, Carthage. Carthage was a city-state originally founded as a colony of the powerful Phoenician city of Tyre in about 814 BC. By 265 BC, Carthage had severed all its ties with the eastern Mediterranean and had established itself as the leading commercial state in the western Mediterranean. Based in modern-day Tunisia, it controlled the North African coastline from Gibraltar to Libya, the southern and eastern Spanish coastline Corsica, Sardinia and most of Sicily. Carthage was really one of the four superpowers of the ancient world at this time, the other three being the successor states to Alexander the Great's vast empire, namely the Antigonid Kingdom of Macedonia dominating Greece, the vast Seleucid Empire based in modern Turkey, Syria, Iraq and Iran, and the Ptolemaic Empire based in Egypt and the Levant. As such, Carthage represented by far the most powerful enemy that Rome had ever faced. And during three separate wars, lasting some 80 years from 264 to 146 BC, Carthage was defeated and then totally destroyed by the Romans. However, Roman victory was immensely hard fought, with Hannibal famously invading Italy and inflicting some of the worst defeats ever suffered by the Roman army at the battles of Lake Trasimene and Cannae in 217 and 16 BC. During the Second Punic War, the Carthaginian Wars were called the the Punic Wars, but Rome prevailed for two main reasons. First, its superiority in manpower, which we've heard about, which was derived from its control of a much larger population in Italy than Carthage possessed in North Africa, which meant that it could absorb far higher casualty rates than the Carthaginians, just as it had done against Pyrrhus of Epirus. And second, Rome, rather surprisingly, proved to be far better at constructing a fleet than Carthage expected. And this led to a really totally surprise victory in the First Punic War. And Rome established a very powerful fleet, which was to become a key feature of Roman power in the centuries to come. So Roman victory over Carthage was a game-changer. Not only did it expand Roman territory into Africa and Spain, but it gave it complete mastery over the western Mediterranean and a strong navy matched only by that of Ptolemaic Egypt. It now came face to face with the remaining three great powers of the ancient world. And the question was whether Rome could continue on its path to glory by defeating these successor states to Alexander the Great, who possessed supposedly the best armies at this time in the world.
And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you can go straight into the second episode right now if you want, since I've published the first two episodes together. And we'll talk about Rome's continuing path to glory and how, in my opinion, it got incredibly lucky in the timing of its rise to greatness. And I'll I'll explain exactly what I mean in the next episode. So, thanks so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I'd be really grateful if you wanted to subscribe, tell a friend, or best of all, to leave a review. Reviews are the lifeblood of podcasts, I think, because I can hear what you think of it and adapt the content and style better to suit what you want. So, thanks again for listening and see you next time. (laughs) 